Kia ora whanau. Today I have with me Asaya Jackson. Asaya has written the book on Bitcoin and Black America, where he draws some attention and focus on how the structure is inherently racist and how we have some better alternatives to move forward. Uh, I've recently written the article, The Economics of Decolonization. So the point of us having this conversation today was to see what parallels we could draw between New Zealand and America. Um, Asaya, welcome. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Glad to have this discussion. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so what we do in New Zealand is we usually open up with a mihi. Um, it basically just explains who you are, what culture you're from, and what you use to identify yourself with. Um, they use mountains and rivers. If you just want to give your pepeha or version of that. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I am a black american with roots from native americans the lumbee and cherokee tribes and uh of course um in america being black um i identify with that skin color because that is basically how uh we are identified going forward politically socially so i identify with black and uh i do want to throw out uh most people say african-american um I'm not from Africa, and <laughs> so most people that say that is just sort of saying because all African people are black, uh, or most are black, they say that, but I refer to myself as black. Okay, no worries. So you'd prefer if I, when referring to your community, would say black community rather than anything else? Yeah, black community is great. Cool, no worries. So what led you to writing the book? What was the, the run up to it? Oh yeah, so I found out about Bitcoin in 2013. And uh, after that, went into the rabbit hole deep, studied, learned about mining, trading. Uh, I'm sure you know, as far as with Bitcoin, once you get started, uh, it's, it's almost impossible to get out of it. So uh, I started a business in 2016 doing consulting and educational uh, videos and tools. And uh, well, what I noticed was about 80% of my clients were black. Uh, and it also uh, was pretty you know, inefficient doing one-on-ones or you know, a group of three. So I decided, um, you know, in 2019 to write this book and the timing for me was everything because I realized 2020 is an election year and some crazy shit always happens uh, during election year. Uh, and if something crazy happens, it usually affects black people. So I realized last year I needed to get that book out, give people a year to digest it. And uh, actually the one year anniversary is uh, Saturday. So uh, that got me, got me started writing the book, uh, getting ideas, thinking about um, how we can actually move away from the system and just trying to bring a solution. Absolutely, and I have um, I really enjoyed so far reading your book. Um, since that one year, what sort of uptake or what sort of interaction from the communities have you had? Oh yeah, so mostly positive. Um, you know, I went on a book tour starting in August and most people who have heard about Bitcoin were misinformed. And as you know, the media, they just lie as, as much as they can and get to get away with it as much as they can get away with. So a lot of my interactions were people who either they heard of Bitcoin, but didn't know what it was, or they had preconceived notions of Bitcoin. And I had to explain the difference. So um, the feedback was has been great. I think a lot of people who thought that Bitcoin was one thing and you tell them it's not, and then if the light bulb goes off, like, hold, hold on. So this is actually a real solution. You're like, yes, this, this is not some you know, fake money, uh, you know, tulips, whatever people try to explain it. So uh, the feedback has been great. Uh, I've gotten, you know, people who like Jack Dorsey to endorse it, um, some of the bigger podcasts, of course. And in my opinion, the community itself is starting to change their way of thinking. So it's been great feedback, great to see it. That's awesome to hear. Has there been any sort of 
organization formed off the back of that book in terms of um, creating awareness further outside of obviously your structure as well as the other communities that are still uh, starting to form around it? Absolutely. So uh, Black People in Cryptocurrency uh, is on Facebook. That is a group uh, that's pretty big right now. I've also, uh, I have a startup called Blackchain, um, which is being developed now. And we're looking to, to partner with uh, some big payment companies uh, in order to get that outreach out and then also incorporate Bitcoin as well. So the work continues. Uh, the book is really just a guide to where we should go in the future, but the work that's around it, the organizations that'll be formed, looking at having a 501c3 uh, by the end of the year, um, just so we can uh, donate to uh, you know kids, Bitcoin summer camps, uh, things of that nature. So. Absolutely. That's awesome to hear. Have you had much negative pushback on the book? Um, not much, um, which is surprising. I was ready for it. Um, I actually I actually wrote a rebuttal to my own book, uh, trying to plan for what, you know, attack vectors people could have. And I haven't really had any negative feedback. Uh, only The only negative feedback I would say is, uh, I think it was one guy in Chicago. I was on my book tour. He just would not, he just didn't like Bitcoin. He didn't like anything about it. And, and at the end of the conversation, he admitted, I mean, I actually own two Bitcoins, but <laughs> <laughs> so even that, even that pushback was, was positive because I said, um, even you realize that it's probably more risky to not own any Bitcoin than it is to, to own it. So um, the support has been great uh, online. It may have been pushback, but I kind of ignore it. Most of it's bots, who knows? Yeah. People with one follower and, you know, uh, no uh, avatar. So yeah, pushback hasn't been big and I, I just like the support um, or I love the support that I've gotten so far. Awesome, glad to hear that. Um, you say in the book that we have a racist banking system. Could you explain a bit on how it is racist? Absolutely, so the Federal Reserve was started in 1913. It was created by rich white men for relatively rich white men. And they created the system to basically funnel money from the workers of this, the society into their own pockets. And they were able to basically print money at will. And then when that money from the Federal Reserve goes to uh, the banks that are used, most of the banks only hired white people. And those white people had a preconceived notion about black people based on things like uh, A Birth of a Nation, which came out in 1920 or so, some, somewhere in the beginning of the 19th, uh, 20th century. And preconceived notions based on that, uh, preconceived notions based on segregation. Um, we had over 40 massacres of black communities uh, between 1860 to 1930, which was a crucial time period because that was the time period, other than today, that was the biggest time for black owned businesses um, because they didn't have a federal reserve system that could inflate their money. You brought value to a community, your community became more valuable. And I think that kicked off where you had a banking system that realized if we can shut out Black people from getting loans, uh, which they did very effectively uh, in the 1930s and 40s. Um, also with housing, um, the biggest store of wealth most families have is their house and the inability to get a loan for a house, even with uh, equal qualifications uh, has garnered, in my opinion, uh, the Federal Reserve is very racist. And if you look at the Federal Reserve, it's entirely compromised of white people. Uh, there, there are no Black, uh, Indian, Chinese, there's no, there's no other representation. Um, so what they're doing is just perpetuating what has been started long ago. And that generational wealth has been taken out of our community because of that. And in my opinion, because they are racist, we owe them nothing. Banks, Federal Reserve, their practices, we owe them nothing. So um, 
that to me is the choice that we have to, to make coming forward. I, I agree. And um, it's interesting there when you're talking about the sort of land wars and dispossessed land, you're talking about the 1860s. Mm-hmm. That's quite interesting because that's the exact same sort of timing where we had the land wars in New Zealand and the mm-hmm. dispossessed land. Um, you then go on to say how the Federal Reserve is created um, from the white culture for the white culture at the time. Um, and then you also mentioned that there's no people of any other ethnicity in the Federal Reserve as it is now, um, which I saw the photo the other day and it is just everyone <laughs> it is white there. Um, so you also talk about how dispossessed lands and um, land itself was the main store of value at the time. Um, so because of that dispossessed land, there was different opportunities, different amount of stored wealth able to be handed down throughout generation. Um, so that's sort of the encapsulating racism that you're, you're talking about, which is the disparity between cultures to hand down wealth, right? Absolutely. And then you also mentioned that it's for the white people. So I guess something you'd, we should point out is that um, those shareholders of the banks get a lot of money. I know billions go out to Australian shareholders every year. We have four main banks in New Zealand um, that uh, do or conduct 86% of all the lending to New Zealanders. And those four banks are all Australian owned. Um, and the smallest bank is just about sending a billion a year to Australia from New Zealand. And that's the smallest one of the four. Um, I also noticed that there's a real lack of economic representation for the minorities um, in the sense that how many black economists do you know of? Yeah, uh, I, I know a few only because I've you know studied it and read it, but famous ones, ones that are quoted a lot, not many. Uh, Thomas Sowell uh, will probably be one of the more popular ones. Dr. Claude Anderson will probably be one of the more popular ones, but you're right. We don't have economists at the forefront of the black community, and that's for a reason. They don't get as much promotion. People don't, you know, think about them as much, but our sports and entertainment people are on TV all the time. Yeah. So you can see why that is, the, you know, the bread, bread and circuses, basically. Yeah, we'll just entertain them. Uh, they can play sports, but it's, when they start talking about the economy, we are not putting them on TV. We will not put them on mainstream media. And we, in some cases, have suppressed uh, their message uh, when they try and go out and, and, and tell black people. So, yes, uh, that is true. Black economists are not at the forefront. They should be. Yeah, absolutely. It's just that kind of bread and circus, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you also go on to talk about inflationism um, and how that negatively impacts society because... I guess what we should probably touch on is the Cantillon effect. And I don't know how to pronounce that word correctly. I think it's like Cantillon, but yeah. I always hear people say Cantillon, so I'll just say it like that, just mm-hmm. for the name's sake. Um, but how that redistributes wealth from people's savings to those who are printing. And as we know, those who are closest to the money spigot are not only the richest, but are also predominantly white. So can you explain or how do you touch on in the book how that affects the black community specifically? Oh yeah, absolutely. So um, in the 1930s and 40s, um, the term white wasn't really even a thing. Um, if you look at Ellis Island in New York, there were Italians, there were Russians, there were Irish, there were a lot of different white-skinned people, but they 
they identified with their country or their community that they were from. The notion of being white or a white American came about with the ability to have white skin, of course, but to get money from banks. And they basically had it where they were like, well, you can join our society or our big money scheme, so to say, with your white skin because we trust it. And as much as people don't want to admit it, if we had black people in cages, they thought of us as animals uh, at the time. So to them, it was like, well, if we expand it to white skinned people, um, they'll be accepted as quote unquote white. And going forward, um, they will propagate that same thing on others. So for example, if you are able to get a, a loan for a house and you have land and you have this land over the years, um, one of the things you can do is build wealth. And then let's say 20 years from now, your kids own it. Um, they would look and say, hey, what's wrong with those black people over there? Why can't they do for themselves? Without realizing that the only reason they got it was because of their, their whiteness. And it wasn't really any major qualifications that overdid it, but then you have neighborhoods and uh, money creation systems where they're like, well, now we can segregate. Now we can redline. And that started in the uh, 50s and 60s. So it's literally just the domino effect of giving money to people in those certain, uh, certain heritages that, were, that had white skin, but were not necessarily from England, you know what I mean, uh, who, who actually started the, the, the colonialism. So that is what I mean when I say they have given white people the power with giving them the money, and then going forward uh, generationally, that's how that, that wealth is built. So um, yes, very racist, and a lot of it uh, <laughs> is subconscious, um, because if, you, if you're constantly bombarded with media saying, Yes, black people can't do for self. See, look at those black people. They're, they're poor. They can't do this. Why can't they pull themselves up by their bootstraps? You start thinking, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I worked hard. I got this. And in reality, it's like you didn't work any harder than any other uh, you know, minority race. You just had the benefits of before. And that's one of the things we're starting to see now. People are starting to realize that, uh, thankfully, almost 100 years after. <laughs> the yeah. was over 100 years after it was created. So, yes, it was a very racist system. And you can participate in it without being racist. You got no racist bone in your body and you can participate in the system without realizing it. So. Absolutely. That's, um, that's some good points there because I've seen a lot of people in the sort of Bitcoin community will really focus on, oh, they're just poor, but yeah. not learn in depth why or the disparity between the ability to hand down wealth. They just think that it's lazy or that, it's self-victimizing. They just want handouts where it's not really, it's just perpetuating that sort of inequitable feedback loops that um, is mentioned in that article uh, using Jeff Booth's analogy on Twitter where he uses the Monopoly game. Yep. Um, but it's also interesting that they had red line district uh, sort of areas where you could only buy land in certain areas because they were scared of, you know, the black community moving into the white community because it would affect that housing's prices. That to me is insane. Um, but we also had it in New Zealand as well. Um, and it's kind of interesting in the sense that now when you look at the price and the value of those districts in contrast, um, that wealth that has accumulated by just simply owning that property and handing it down between the two different neighborhoods is, is huge. Um, there's a great Netflix um, explain series on it by one of the US senators that does a lot of justice there. Um, so would you say that the problem from the 
economic model and the banking sort of preferences based on skin would would be systemic since its creation absolutely i i would definitely agree with that and the reason i say that is like i said before you can be white have not be racist at all and you're participating in a system that was built on racism and because of that system um that is something that people don't realize they're like well i'm taking apart i'm just i just want to get this house even today uh, we're starting to see gentrification in areas that were mostly black um and it's funny because in the 70s and 80s you had what we call here white flight uh when black people did start moving into the suburbs or into inner cities around the country white people left and went to the suburbs and then a lot of their kids are coming back to the inner city and buying up the properties because the property value has gone so low so yes, they're participating in the system and don't even realize it. They're, they're, and they could, they're not doing anything wrong, but that's what systems do. There's a system in place and all you have to do is live your life and you'll win because that's how most white people, if you do what you're supposed to do and you're white, you probably are going to win at a certain point. You can do everything right black and uh, one cop doesn't like you and then all of a sudden they can pin a charge on you and you get a, a year or two in jail. Now you're a felon now, everything, you know what I mean? And I've seen that with friends over the years who have just been, They've done everything right. But on the broader scale, inflation, if you're already at a lower economic class, inflation hurts everybody. Who do you think it hurts most? People who are at the lower end. That's why the median value of black families is the same since the 60s. Because we're making more money. We have more lawyers, more doctors, more business owners. We had a black president. We've had people in high CEO positions. In fact, the most money raised uh, was by a black man, Robert Jones, uh, by a venture capitalist. So we've done the work. The problem is the community's value has not increased because inflation. Since the 60s, inflation has slowly, it kills slowly over time. And that's one of the things that affects us all, but has affected us, I think, much more. And the disparity is, is very clear to see. Absolutely. It's one of those feedback loops as well from the people who had the land first, they get the rent, they have that income to then capitalize and you know make other opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you're paying the rent constantly, you don't have that sort of income, and it and it really shows in terms of the average total income between communities. Right. And that's to be poor. Yeah, exactly. And so that's something that I would say would be the problem in the sense that um, overrepresentation and incarceration over-representation and suicide statistics are symptomatic of over-representation in the lowest socioeconomic classing. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you can kind of frame it that way and then you talk about the Cantillon effect as a reverse Robin Hood where it punishes those. So the thing that baffles me the most is the fact that when being colonized or when being forced into an economic system, that that system clearly um, rewards some participants over others in terms of where the money was distributed, who had what opportunities, who was allowed to be lent what at what interest rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you look at it that way, you see that the economic system was not apolitical. It had an agenda, it had motivation, and in Dr. Calton's paper, she talks about how um, a father was getting their kids to do household chores. And he said, you know, I will give you business cards. Yeah. Yeah. And they said, what? I don't want your business cards. Why would I? 
Um, and then he goes, okay, well, you have to pay me 30 business cards per month. Otherwise, you don't get the TV. You don't get, you know, your rides to and from soccer practice. Rah, 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 all the benefits. Um, but then he saw that all of a sudden they were hustling to get these business cards. And then she makes a correlation between that and how the British pound was originally introduced in New Zealand and said how quickly the community works around that economic system to continue building it, even though it has an agenda, purely because they impose tax, which could only be paid in their currency. Mm -hmm. So considering that and how we know how it's been tilted in favor of one culture or the other, we can show that it was racist, it was systemic, and it is from that institution. Absolutely. So, given that it is inherently um, systemic racism from that institution, but I saw that you're on the John Vallis podcast with Alex and obviously John, um, where they kind of disagree with that notion. I think it's more aimed towards the whole police brutality side of things and the statistics reflected there. Um, but what is your thoughts on when you're having these conversations with people that aren't from the black community? So usually when I talk to people who are in the black community, I go into it knowing that some things they don't realize and they never will because they're not black. They just won't realize it. All I can do is present the facts and show them uh, what has happened since then. Um, usually I tend to agree with the, uh, the, politi the politicized uh, part of Black Lives Matter. I think the, the term Black Lives Matter is valid. Uh, the group itself has been very politicized and they haven't really done much for black people. Um, and I don't, I'm not affiliated with them or anything. So I understood their criticisms there. Um, and also going forward, as far as how things affect people, yes, it affects us all. However, as a black person who has done history research, I'm not falling for the same trick that we, this, we are the world bullshit and we're all in this together. That's, I'm never gonna fall for that because we tried it. In the 60s, we got integration from the Democratic Party, uh, who then went on to sign the same crime bill that put a lot of black people in jail. But we started off with the integration, which should have just been natural, but what, it ended, up, what ended up happening, this old we are the world, we're the all together, all of the best black athletes started going to their colleges, all of the best black minds started going to the Ivy League and, and the schools that were created by white people. A lot of the uh, best black talent was farmed out to companies owned by white CEOs instead of them working for black CEOs. So what you had was taking wealth out of our community through integration, uh, when in reality, we should have been building for ourselves. And I think when I have these conversations, they don't realize that because they didn't live it. They don't, they don't see it. And um, I think everybody does want to you know, work together to have a better world. But economically, what works is group economics. And I've seen it. I live in uh, Los Angeles, and I've seen it on display in various areas. There's, uh, there's small pockets, little Ethiopia, uh, Koreatown, Armenia, little Armenia. They work together, they shop with each other, they hire each other, and then they can grow. And then you look 50 years later and the poor immigrants who started out with $20, they have million, million dollar grandkids because they were able to keep that money circulating. So uh, with black people, I want us to stay vigilant. And I think when I have these conversations, they, they don't get it and I don't, now, they won't because they're not black, but they do have to understand that group economics is the only thing that has to work that I've seen. Absolutely. And, and you're quite right in the sense that by hiring each other, working on a project or anything together and then handing it down 
through the, to the next generation while employing people from that same community, that is sort of the tide that raises all ships. Now, recently I've seen, um, you know, the Duke and Dukes of uh, England, Prince Harry and his wife, Megan, and they're, they're talking about how we need to confront colonialism so that we can all work together. And then they use that analogy, the high tide raises all ships. But what they don't confront at all, or even talk about, is the disparity between stored wealth handed down there. They just still want to perpetuate the same system, which has benefited their culture a lot more. Yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is we've now diagnosed like how that system perpetuated, what its repercussions were, how it functioned. How does Bitcoin fix this stuff? So Bitcoin, in my opinion, uh, is the best type of peaceful protest, simply because you're taking money out of a system that is constantly taking wealth uh, and value from you and you're putting it into a deflationary system, a system that encourages savings, a system that increases your uh, purchasing power over time, and it gives you the ability to be self-sovereign. You can build communities now where you don't ever have to use the dollar at all. If everybody in that community accepts Bitcoin or any, any type of cryptocurrency, that's all you have to use. Um, and then, you know, we have the tech speeding up to, to catch up with it, but yes, these, these things are solved by Bitcoin, which going forward, you won't have these colonialists who have, they're still making money off of these countries. They, they haven't stopped that, but they want to stop colonialism. What you'll have is a shift in who's quote unquote in control. And if the people are in control and it's decentralized, you don't have these concentrated pockets of wealth with maybe 10 or 15 families around the world who hold trillions of dollars and they just hoard the money. And then long-term there's nothing being circulated uh, with Bitcoin. I think that solves that the ability to circulate wealth in your economy with group economics. I think that it does that. And of course, in my opinion, the value of Bitcoin, it will increase greatly over time. So if you're a community that owns it, you now have one of the most valuable assets and it'll change what people think about these, a queen or a king, like, nobody's going to want that anymore. It's like, I'm an adult and then we're self-sovereign. We got our own land, we grow our own food, we have our own currency. We don't need you. Yeah. At that point, it kind of uh, shows the emperor has no clothes. You know what I mean? Kind of pull, pull that veil back because they're just people who are living in this system that was created by people hundreds of years ago and they keep perpetuating it. But that system is cracking right before our eyes and you have people who are openly just like, I'm not participating in the system. I don't like our president. I don't like... Uh, the queen, I don't like it. whoever whoever puts themselves in control, government officials, I think that is how it will change. And it opens up your mind a lot because once you can see that, once you see who controls the money, you see who controls you. And if it's you controlling your money, then you are what I would say sovereign, a sovereign individual. Absolutely. It's, um, it's Henry Kissinger's quote where he says, who controls the food, controls the community, who controls the electricity, controls the continents, and uh, who controls the money controls the world. Um, so it is quite interesting and it kind of is akin to the sovereign individual's thesis in the sense that it will decentralize, um, it will localize and create circular sort of economies where it's apolitical. Yep. Um, so I really agree with that. Um, that's a, a good explanation on how things will be changed and fixed. Um, so I also see your um, the co-host of the gentleman of crypto. So I kind of wanted to get into it because it kind of glorifies blockchain. 
um, and there's multiple crypto assets. Um, so I just wanted to see uh, what you're focused on and interested in in terms of other crypto assets apart from Bitcoin. And I'm trying to open up this dialogue so I can explore why because I'm a bit of a maximalist myself. I just want to understand it. I won't try to get you in any gotcha sort of moments, but I just want to understand the sort of thought processes around there. Oh yeah. So I'm a Bitcoin maximalist. Uh, I wouldn't say maximalist, but pretty much there. Uh, 90% of my portfolio, 95% mostly is in Bitcoin. When we discuss other cryptocurrencies, no matter how people feel about the centralized nature of them, because we all know they're all centralized. They have, because the, the property, the value uh, proposition of Bitcoin is that Nobody controls it. There's no Bitcoin building. There's no foundation or whatever that's created by Satoshi. So what I see is a new sector that is centralized like the ones we have that solves issues uh, in the black community using blockchain technology. Now, what those issues will solve, I believe will take years. Uh, however, I want to get people acclimated and give them all the information uh, so that they can read it. Because one of the biggest questions we get is, well, what about Ethereum? What about Monero? And I, we explain it to them. So that at a certain point, they see the game and they're like most people and then they're like, well, this isn't really Bitcoin. And then they come back to Bitcoin anyway. So it's sort of, uh, I wouldn't say, you know, tricking them into, into it. But if you just pound Bitcoin, pound Bitcoin, people are like, well, I'm going to look at something else just because, you know what I mean? But if you talk about everything, they eventually come back to Bitcoin anyway. Uh, and also in, in the blockchain industry, one of the things I've seen is an increase in payments or an increase in getting paid as a blockchain engineer. Or working for these companies and in the black community if you're a accountant right now um as an accountant you can say i know how to do crypto taxes not just bitcoin but crypto taxes and you can increase the wealth of your business so knowing about cryptocurrency knowing their different use cases is why we bring it up that's why we discuss it and we just answer everybody's general questions uh i tell people all the time like i said i'm 90 95 bitcoin i'm not saying i'm going all in on dogecoin or that's never going to happen because to me it's more than just money it's a movement to move away from a system i think centralized coins like ethereum monero i think they have their use cases and they will be successful i would i don't want to tell anybody because i made money from from their growth you know it, I, I was buying ethereum at seven dollars um but there is a dow there's a centralized Vitalik Buterin uh, creator, and they do have, you know, like most cryptocurrencies, uh, people that you can reach out to to explain it. So I think their business models uh, will be like centralized business models today, maybe a little bit better. Uh, but Bitcoin is, like I said, I'm a maximalist on that as well. So we got to discuss it. I just want to give everybody the information. Okay. So I understand that because you're trying to increase people in your community's ability to earn more money. Um, would you say though that in terms of money itself that it's zero sum game and that in terms of value proposition in the long term that as far as money goes that they don't really compete but as far as a platform and what they can provide with services perhaps outside of the scope of money they have that sort of field to operate in would you agree with that oh yeah, yeah absolutely and one of the things too is I see where we're going, but the bridge to get there, you have to use things that people are familiar with. Yeah. So if you're telling somebody about Bitcoin and like the money system is going to change forever and bits and Satoshis and you start explaining it, they're like, okay, but that's not now. I need to eat tomorrow or yeah. I, I need. So I, I, I know where we're going, but eventually everybody comes back to Bitcoin. Uh, so even if they do explore some other cryptocurrency, hey, I'm going to use whatever, Zcash or Monero, 
uh, whatever they want to use at a certain point, it, they see how speculative it is. They can see the use case for it. And then they always come back to Bitcoin. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a win-win for me. That's good, man. Um, so what do you kind of see unfolding from here? What sort of uh, monumental sort of moments do you think will arise in the near future and in the long future? Oh, yeah. So I believe with big companies onboarding uh, users like PayPal, uh, Cash App, um, you know, some of the bigger ones onboarding people, I think there will be hyper Bitcoinization in the next, I'd say, five years. And what I mean by that is there will be such a small supply and the ability to buy it, but there'll be so much more demand based on where our economy is going. I think there will be a state or a country uh, that uses Bitcoin as a reserve currency. And I think the hash wars that are coming, uh, they've started with China a long time ago and with other countries that are, are competing. I think that's what we'll see. We'll see a government use Bitcoin as a asset and then you'll have basically a run on Bitcoin. Like a, well, how do I get it? How can I buy it? And that'll basically increase the price long term and give it value. I think we'll see people who use gold. They'll see how inefficient and fake it is. The scarcity is so fake and gold is, is pretty easy to, to fake gold bars. I think they just found some in China, like $2 billion worth or something. It was, yeah, it was um, 80 tons worth of tons gold. Exactly. And that's not the first time. That's just what they told you. Yeah. How many different, I mean, how, how do you verify it? So I think people, gold bugs, uh, so to say, in the next five to 10 years, uh, the next generation is not buying gold like that. So for them, digital gold in the form of Bitcoin will be their preferred me method. And if you, you, if you move maybe 5% of gold users that are there now into Bitcoin, I think that's where you'll see that six-figure, maybe seven-figure Bitcoin price. Absolutely. I think you're quite right in terms of the hash wars. I mean, we're starting to see it now with Iran trying to avoid sanctions and Belarus and Venezuela. Um, I think those sort of countries that are struggling to get their own economic sovereignty um, will start picking that up, especially considering the Bank of England just denied Venezuela its gold. Um, I think your diagnosis of gold's incapability of being divisible and transportable is um is quite on point in terms of being a medium of exchange or even being the underlying asset um where anything's pegged to it because of its centralized nature that obviously failed us already um yeah i, I would agree with that sort of out view so what are some projects that you're working on moving forward now that you've finished that book you've obviously got your your um system in place where you're providing education is there any other sort of projects you have on the horizon? Absolutely. So the second edition of Bitcoin in Black America will be out this year. So working hard on that. Um, and also it'll be a webinar series tied to it for everybody who purchases it. Uh, so working on that now, um, uh, like I mentioned before, Blackchain, uh, which is a digital marketplace and uh, investment vehicle for uh, businesses who want to be invested with Bitcoin. Um, we'll also uh, going forward have the gentleman of crypto with sort of switch it up where we'll have more uh, interviews with guests because I want people to hear not just us, but the entire industry uh, could have you on as well. I would love to have you on the show. Um, but yes, that's what I'm working on now. And also I'm working on a project sort of because I'm so busy, but I want to try and increase the number of Bitcoin ATMs in countries where uh, technology isn't as vast. So a lot of countries in Africa and the Caribbean, uh, even in states around America as a Bitcoin ATM owner, uh, I, I do believe the fees are a bit high 
However, um, that's only because it's the start. As they become very, very, very popular, which they will at some certain point, people can give away their cash because that's what people I think will end up doing. Um, then those those prices will come down and then we can get Bitcoin ATMs around the world. So I'm working on that all simultaneously. Um, I don't really sleep much. So uh, <laughs> trying to, because uh, I mean, time is of the essence, uh, especially with Bitcoin. Uh, it's been a year since the last book and so much has changed. I have enough material to write a whole nother book. So, you know, I just want to make sure I, you know, stay vigilant. I'm, all those projects I'm working on now. Absolutely. You want to be uh, in that monopoly analogy again, one of the first movers have that uh, advantage and be in the right place at the right time. Um, with those ATMs, are they KYC? Um, well, sort of. Uh, they KYC for, with your phone number up to a certain amount, which is $900 currently. It used to be more, but the limit is $900 without giving your information. After that, you do have to do KYC. Um, the unfortunate part about the KYC AML part is that it doesn't really it's not more helpful than exchanges if you go past 900. However, there are people buying 50 and $100 worth of Bitcoin all the time. Yeah. So I think it does solve that problem. And most people don't have $1,000 a day or a week or a month to just throw into it. If they do, they can use an exchange. But I think Bitcoin ATM solved that problem. And it's instant. You can go right outside to a gas station and you can buy Bitcoin uh, with exchanges. It could take some time. It could be like Coinbase is shut down out the blue. Uh, <laughs> I mean, every time the price goes up, Coinbase shuts down. It's like, exactly right. Uh, so I think it solves that problem. And I think it gives access to people in a familiar way because you're familiar with ATMs already. So very seamless process. And I'm just trying to get that all around the globe as much as possible. It's only 8,500 total in the world. And the average bank has about 17,000 a piece. So uh, yeah, I definitely want to get that, get that going. Absolutely. So when you're currently referring people, obviously you're highlighting the benefits of it and how we can utilize it. Um, in terms of how you suggest people buy it, are you referring to like Corey Clipston Swan's sort of mythology or methodology um, when it's like DCA? Is that something that you would promote and refer to? Yep. Um, anytime I want a book tour, anytime I speak with people, they say, what's the best strategy? for accumulating Bitcoin. And I'd say dollar cost averaging because you're probably not a trader. 90% uh, of traders lose money and you don't really want to stress. Like I tell people all the time, I had a beautiful head of hair before Bitcoin. <laughs> it's all gone uh, looking at uh, Poloniex at two in the morning uh, and you know, go Blockfolio or whatever. So yeah. uh, you don't want, really want that stress even though I have been successful at the same time. Uh, dollar cost averaging is the best way for people because you can set it and forget it. And I actually work with Corey Klipsting as far as Swan Bitcoin. I, I'm one part of the Swan course. Um, and I definitely use that as a strategy because you can buy $50 a month, $100 a month, whatever, and you don't have to think about it. You're literally just moving your wealth out of the fiat money system into Bitcoin and you're protesting against uh, without even knowing it. I mean, you can just set it, like I said, set it and forget it. So I love that. And to me, that is the best strategy for retail investors. Awesome. Yeah, you're quite right in the sense that it's kind of like Nick Carter's peaceful protest where no mm -hmm. violence is cited, no destruction of private property. You're just peacefully exiting the, you know, inherently racist system we talked about and entering a new era where it's based off, you know, actual money. <laughs> yeah, I always describe it as a, if you break up with your girlfriend, throwing things and breaking the glass and, and trying to do, have violence with her is not going to work. But if you just silently pack your stuff up and walk out of the door. I guarantee you she'll be chasing out like, what is going on? What's, what's happening? What are you, what are you doing? Yeah. It's too late by then. You already have your own spot. You already, and that's what I feel like exiting Bitcoin quietly can do. 
Absolutely. Into Bitcoin can do. Awesome, man. Um, so where else could anyone listening follow you? And if there's anything you'd like to show, now's the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at Bitcoin Zay. Uh, that's Z-A-Y. Um, you can also follow me on the Gentleman of Crypto Daily at 10 a.m. Pacific time. Um, we have news and updates there. And then uh, the new book, Bitcoin in Black America, dot com uh it'll be available there um coming this year awesome hey uh thanks for that bitcoin uh, zay and uh we'll catch you in the future i'm looking forward to seeing your new book absolutely awesome thanks man thank you